Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. I'm Dr. Richard Bolzakelli, lecturer in theology at Catholic Studies, in for Jason Gale, and I'm joined this week by Dr. Smith, our lecturer in philosophy. Today we'll be taking a bit of an introspective approach. We always say in our introduction to this podcast, we concern ourselves with the Catholic intellectual tradition, but just what do we mean by that? We talk about people who aren't Catholic after all, Um, (laughs) and some are even hostile to the Catholic faith. So this is a good question, I think, and um, today we're going to try to get to the bottom of it. But before we do, um, let's not forget the basics. Uh, Like and subscribe, hit the bell, leave your comments down below, and don't forget to share this content on social media. So, Dr. Smith, do you have any initial thoughts on this topic? Sure, you know, uh, Rich. One of the one of my favorite classes that I took in undergraduate many years ago uh, was uh, I took a two semester course on European intellectual history. Mm-hmm. Right? Doesn't that sound fun? Like it was. It was. It, it was. It was like a really cool course. You know, it's, it's uh, politically and, incorrect today, but yes, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, oddly enough, it was taught by a Marxist, but uh-huh. uh, like the only professor I can say who I can say with certainty was a true like doctrinaire Marxist, right? Uh-huh. Uh, but she was actually great. She's a great teacher, actually. Uh, and uh, uh, but it was a, it was a fascinating class, and it introduced me to the idea of intellectual tradition or intellectual history right yeah um, and I, and you know when i think about catholic studies academy that course and maybe some other things i've i've read sort of influenced kind of the way i think about it i think at the beginning you know we didn't when we when we were putting this together you know we didn't sort of talk about it the podcast as catholic an introduction to catholic dogma right mm-hmm. or uh strictly speaking uh, an introduction to Thomist philosophy or um, Catholic theology, right? That right. sort of thing, right? We wanted actually to talk about something that's broader than that, right? And mm-hmm. I think something that's really um, deep and attractive uh, and really uh, wonderful, right? Uh, and and worthy of praise, which is this broader Catholic intellectual tradition. You know, when people ask me sometimes about you know what brought me into the faith into the Catholic faith, you know, I can say a variety of things, but certainly one of, one of the resources, one of the, the sources, one of the factors at play was just, you know, the sense of the wealth and the riches of this Catholic intellectual tradition, right? Mm-hmm. In which I would include people as different as Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, of course, but then also people like Dante, Right. Uh, you would want to uh, include people like John Henry Newman, right, uh, as well, right? Um, and, you know, maybe even some Catholic authors, right, like uh, Evelyn Waugh or people like that. So we're, you know, so we're in a literary tradition, right, um, which we don't touch on very much because it's just not our area, but we do focus more on theology and philosophy. But that's part of it, I would say, uh, uh, as well. So when I think we're talking about the Catholic intellectual tradition, we're talking about a tradition of thought, a tradition of inquiry um, that is broader than, say, Catholic dogma, mm-hmm. or I would say 
Catholic tradition in that capital T sense, right? We're we're not, you know, we're talking about something that's broader than that, right? Um, does that sound sound accurate to you, Rich? Yeah, it does. I have a couple of initial thoughts on that. So, sure. um, you know, we could name, of course, a lot of Catholic thinkers who do all sorts of things, and one could make the argument that, in as much as they're Catholic and, um, you know, they're they're not completely whatever they do isn't really completely disconnected from the faith. These are integrated people. Mm-hmm. Um, that that must be in some way attached to the Catholic tradition. Um, but we can go much further than that, even, I think. Right. Now, I don't think we want to end up with a term that it's so loosely defined that it doesn't really mean anything. Sure. But, um, you know, but but I look at, when we look at the documents that uh, come out of the Second Vatican Council, right, for mm-hmm. example, there was a, um, you know, there was, in discussions of the Eastern churches, it's interesting here that um, there was an effort made at that time to to kind of come to grips with the fact that these churches, though separated from us, and acknowledging that that separation is not without its difficulties, mm-hmm. um, are nonetheless true churches, that we've always acknowledged that they have apostolic succession, that they have valid sacraments, um and um and so there was a statement i don't remember which document off the top of my head this is uh, this is just occurring to me now so i didn't like prep for it but mm-hmm. uh but there there's a statement maybe it's in lumen gentium um that actually describes them as part of the catholic tradition um that basically they're theological tradition is uh is part of our own and um and that's an interesting that's an interesting idea which i'll i'll come back to in just a second but you know i think of the people that we talk about who are obviously outside the catholic tradition um sure they're not they don't share any of the same core beliefs that we do right they oppose Mm -hmm. some of them we talk about Karl marx we talk about Mm-hmm. We talk about Hegel. Um, sure, you know we've probably talked about Schopenhauer, mm-hmm. uh, Nietzsche for sure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, these guys. <laughs> I mean, are they part of the Catholic tradition? Well, mm-hmm. the way I tend to think of it is, uh, what are the issues and ideas with which the church is engaged? Right, right. In any given age, right? Sure, sure. Um, and so I, I think in that respect, right, it's maybe mm-hmm. Friedrich Nietzsche as such isn't part of the Catholic intellectual tradition. He opposes mm-hmm. it. Sure. But our existence as Catholics is shaped by the fact that we're, that we have to confront Nietzsche and that Nietzsche is confronting us. That's true. Yeah. And over a central question, right? Right. A set of questions, right? And I think maybe right. that's a good way to think about it is, um, you know, we did a series on on Marx, right? And um, I think, you know, again, Marx hot, very hostile to religion, very hostile, you know, to to Roman Catholicism. Um, but you know, uh, uh, as Catholics, we do have a long uh, interest in the social order and political community, right? 
uh, and community in general. Um, and Marxism addresses that, you know, like, you know, you think about the the great social encyclical Rerum Novarum, right? You know, there, there's a kind of almost a direct confrontation, right, uh, of the church with respect to both capitalism and Marxism, right? That mm -hmm. both, right, are, are sort of... Um, uh, sort of at odds with a Catholic answer, right, to the social question. But one really clear point is that this is a question for Catholics, right? That yeah. social question is not illegitimate, right? Now, we have other elements within our tradition that don't emphasize the social question, right? And that's fine, right? Not everything does everything, right? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you know, you, you can't be a great, uh, uh, you know, uh, at everything and, and concentrate on everything. But, um, you know, so you have the, like the t-shirt I have on here where you, uh, it's Memento Mori, right? Remember death, you know, there you have a little bit more of like the, the Benedictine flavor in which you kind of have a, maybe a little bit of the flight from the world and an emphasis on the otherworldly, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's fine. That's a different part of that intellectual tradition. But certainly a part of it is the social question, right? The question yeah. about how society should be justly organized. That's something that's distinct, I think, about the the Catholic intellectual tradition. Not every uh, Christian tradition is, is, is as engaged in that, or at least has been historically, right? Um, and so that is something I think that's a marker and then does bring us into a wider conversation, right? If yep. you're going to ask the social question, well, you're going to have to have, you don't necessarily have all the conversation partners you want. You have the conversation partners you have, right? Right, 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 right. At that time, which might be people like Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche, right? Uh, and, and so that's why it's relevant. Now, obviously, you know, that's not, you wouldn't think of Nietzsche or Hegel or uh, Marx as the core, I would think, of the Catholic intellectual tradition, right? But certainly engagement with them is going to be part of that history, right? Yeah. And so I think, you know, when you situate it, when you situate the Catholic intellectual tradition historically, right, then it makes a lot of sense that you're going to be pulling in kind of a broad spectrum of things, right? Uh, both in terms of opponents and, alter uh, and alternatives, right? Um, you know, uh, as well as sources, so one way maybe of thinking about this is let's just take the disputed question, right, as a model. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. The disputed question, you know, in that sort of medieval, very formulaic way, brings in alternatives, right? You bring in the the objections, right? Mm -hmm. The people you disagree with. And of course, especially if it's you know a disputed question of theology, you're going to bring in your sources, right? You're going to talk about scripture, you're going to talk about the fathers, you're going to talk about um uh, uh, church councils, you know, things of that nature, right? So you're going to have a diversity of sources uh, as well, you know, um, or if, you know, even if you're working in a philosophical mode, you know, you'll bring in the, uh, the philosophical tradition uh, or sources that you're relying on, right? But there in that disputed question, right, you see, yeah, maybe I'm thinking about, I don't know, the nature of Christ, right? <laughs> like that, right? But I have yeah. to bring in all sorts of things that maybe I disagree with, and and also have to bring in sources that maybe don't directly bear on the question, right? Uh, but are nevertheless resources for me in trying to answer that question. Right, right. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Does that make sense? Um, yes, it does. 
So it's interesting, though, that, you know, we've got um, there are times in there are times in uh, our history, right, in which we've not done the best job of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, um, Johann von Eck, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is kind of like in response to the Protestant Reformation. Um, you know, he's got this. His attitude was um, non disputandum uh, cum hereticis refutandum, right? We, we don't uh, dispute with heretics we refute them mm. and um and, and that particular attitude you know <laughs> if you want to think about it right that particular sure. attitude um is it it some way in some ways it truncates um you know this sort of engagement approach to catholic tradition sure right you see what i mean um yeah, and sure, i think that sure. one of the criticisms from people like um, Ratzinger and, um, you know, and um, the other uh, ressourcement um, and adjournamento types during the Second Vatican Council um, was really that we had become entrenched in a disengagement approach. And so the Mm. Catholic intellectual tradition was sort of atrophying. Sure, sure. What do you so you kind of like uh, you only study Kant. You, uh, I think the the, the phrase I, I, I like uh, that helps here a little bit is uh, you study Kant like anti aircraft gunners study airplanes, right? Only right. to shoot them down, right? Right. right uh, instead right. of trying to uh, appreciate or understand Kant, that doesn't leave out, of course, very importantly, engaging in criticism, right? You right. know, critique is part of engagement. But it's not yeah. the only part of engagement, right? right. Like if you're going to be engaged with a thinker, you know, I always try when I teach my students, you know, an introduction class, uh, you know, I, I try to teach them, look, um, let's understand this first. You know, let's not start by like trying to shoot every little bit down, like try to get a picture, try to understand the parts, try to get a sense of the whole, right? Mm-hmm. Then, like, you know, especially like say I'm teaching something kind of far out, like, like an argument for the platonic forms or something like that. Well, um, you know, that's going to be, I'm going to tell them, like, this is going to be weird. It's going to be kind of uncomfortable and odd, but just wait until we've done it for a couple of weeks and you have a sense of the full picture, right? Yeah. Only then are you actually even beginning to be in a position to be critical, right? That, that'd be perfect. Yeah, honest. that was an important, that was you know, an I important think lesson that I learned but, during my undergraduate career, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I remember um, I, Fairly early on, when I started studying philosophy, I became attracted to certain thinkers and certain ways, certain sort of metaphysical presuppositions. And I found it difficult to um, to give to give other philosophical traditions a fair shake. Uh-huh. Sure. Right. Right. Um, and I, I would just sort of like. I'd be like, well, that can't be right because blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and and it, I might be right in that critique, right? I, sure. That could be correct. Yeah, it might be. But accurate. the problem is I'm not, at that point, I'm not seeing why the view appealed to someone in the first place. Sure. Um, sure. What problems it identifies um, that m- maybe my other, my system of thought um, doesn't give a fair treatment to. Mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. or you know maybe this question is still hanging out there no one's no one's solved this particular problem um and this guy's trying to solve it right that's what motivates him 
Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think that's really kind of an important thing. And, yeah. um, you know, so I would, I guess I would say that, um, and you see this actually, you mentioned the disputed question thing. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right. In the middle ages. Remember that the idea there is to give your interlocutor his best argument, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's important. Uh, one of the things that I always try to point out to, to students, you know, uh, I, at different times I've had students write a disputed question as an, yeah, as I've an done exercise, that too, yeah. you know, it's a fun exercise uh-huh. and it's actually intellectually just for your mind, right? It's a good exercise to try to, this is actually tricky. Displace yeah. your view and try to imagine you're in the other position and come up with the best arguments for the person you're opposing. Right. Right. That's, that's exactly, I mean, that's a very important step. Most of all, because it shows your intellectual integrity in terms of I'm really after the truth. And, you know, when I formulate that other person's view, I might actually learn like, Hey, actually that's the point, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. like I've actually, I'm showing them doing the work. Right. Uh, yeah. actually testing, right. Uh, my hypotheses. Right. So I think that's, yeah. that's important. Um, uh, really important uh, step just for your own mind. And I think this is very important, an important aspect of the Catholic intellectual tradition, right. That is yeah. disputation, uh, you know, with, in- with engagement, right. That that's important, right. There is that kind of I guess a, a way of embracing critical thinking, you know, having been now so engaged with the Catholic intellectual tradition for so many years now, I always find it baffling when people just, you know, talk about from outside, you know, just sort of have this view that, you know, if you're a Catholic, you don't have any critical thinking or whatever. And I was like, really? Like, you just don't, you haven't, you, you know, literally don't know what you're anything. talking about. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, you're just ignorant. Like, it's like me, it would be like me saying something like, you know, maybe, and maybe some people say this guy, like, like, there's no philosophical thought in the Islamic tradition, right? Well, you just uh-huh. don't know what you're talking about. You're that's false, right? Yeah. <laughs> like uh-huh. if you actually read some stuff, right? right. Um, so if, in our conversation here, like a couple of points have come out, right? One is that we want to think about the Catholic intellectual tradition as um, being critical, but engaged, right? So yeah. like engaged in, in certain questions, and engaged with sort of the broader world, I guess you might say, even though our opponents, right? So there's a sense of engagement, but also engagement with certain questions like the social question. Obviously, Christological questions, Trinitarian questions are very, would also be, you know, even much more central to this mm-hmm. uh, tradition. Uh, and also talked about the idea of this tradition as historically situated. And I think that's a good thing to lean into a little bit more here. One thing I would want to say is, you know, kind of think about the, if we're talking about our interlocutors who are outside the tradition, that's kind of at the peripheries of the tradition, right? But I think part of the core is that any intellectual tradition is actually emerges and is embodied in a concrete historical community and set of institutions, right? Not that it has to be the same set of institutions over the whole period, right? So, mm-hmm. for example, the Catholic intellectual tradition existed before the medieval university. Certainly, the medieval university put a stamp on the Catholic intellectual tradition that will never go away, right? 
uh, I think. Like, it'll always be part of the conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're talking about the Catholic intellectual tradition. Obviously, though, look at look at what we're doing. We're on a podcast. Yeah. Right? And we're part of a thing called Catholic Studies Academy, right? And that's not a medieval university, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. institution. Mm-hmm. So there's new institutions in which this can exist. But you can still say, look, there is a there are historical institutions and a historical community that this that makes possible this intellectual tradition, right? And of course, what I want to say is the most obvious thing: <laughs> it's the church, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. It's the Catholic Church, right? There would be no Catholic intellectual tradition if there were no Catholic Church, right? And so yeah. that this this intellectual tradition, this tradition of thought right, of reflection, reflection most essentially on the Gospels and the, you know, the message of Christ and the reality of Christ, right, I would say, right, maybe most essentially, Uh, but within this community, right, you know, Mm -hmm. so with all due respect to say uh, our, you know, separated brethren who are in, you know, Protestant communities, you know, we might you have a conversation with them, right? Because there is a, some basis for unity, but they're not sort of at that core of the Catholic intellectual tradition because explicitly because they don't want to be, <laughs> right? Yeah. They're not part of that community, uh, if that makes sense. I'm not trying to relativize it in a sociological way, but I am saying that that is an important, that's an essential element, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it exists within yeah. this community and addresses the concerns of this community. Right, right, right. So, um, yeah, so there's this idea that um, it's part of the life of the church, right? That's right. Yes, yes, right. Um, it's not just something that sort of falls out of the sky, yeah. right? It, <clears throat> it, it, there's a concrete revelation in Jesus Christ and in the Hebrew scriptures before that, right, that, that motivates and grounds this community, right? Yeah, and so here we are collectively from all our different vantage points and within all different states of life, mm-hmm. um, engaging that that reality, right? And trying mm-hmm. to live it out and uh, in the historical context in which we live. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you think about one of the problems, you know, one of the things that I like to bring up sometime, from time to time is, you know, do you know what part of the Summa was most broadly copied and circulated in the medieval period? And most people might guess, well, it's going to be, you know, uh, the doc, uh, the treatise on God, right? Yeah. Or so today, gonna, to, if, you know. if you, it's interesting because I, I don't know the answer to this question off the okay. top of my head, but right. I would, but here's what I think, this is what I would have said when I was an undergraduate. I would have assumed it was the prima pars mm-hmm. um, and um, particularly the stuff on, on God, right? Right. Sure. Um, that's what I would have assumed because mm-hmm. that's what. If you take a volume of the Summa Theologiae off a library shelf that's been sitting mm-hmm. there for many, many years, <laughs> right. it's clearly the most worn <laughs> volume right. on the shelf. That's right. That's but, right. Yeah, yeah. It's but, really, yeah. So it's really the secunda secunda. Yeah. And which uh-huh. is the moral stuff yeah. that would be used by a confessor. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Isn't that cool? And that's and that's because the Dominican preachers, right? Their primary task was preaching and confession. Uh-huh. You know, that's like in their early days, that's what they did, right? And so uh, it makes sense, right? See, Thomas is writing theology 
certainly he wants to write theology so that the mind ascends to God and we have and provides you with this kind of contemplative context, which is important. But also like for his frar, his fraters, right? Like his, yeah. you know, for the other Dominicans who are going about the work of preaching and and hearing confessions. That's yeah. a good example, right, of uh-huh. of theology and the Catholic intellectual tradition being embedded in the life of the community. Right. Yeah, it's also it's it, another interesting part of that. And I, I don't want to get too distracted um like down this rabbit hole, but it is interesting, right, to understand. How, how our perception of our own tradition becomes distorted over time. Hmm. And uh, we have the impression that the Middle Ages is all about the sume, right? It's all about the systematic <laughs> right. stuff. And, and that's, that's a distorted view. I mean, the reality sure. is that there was plenty of hagiography going on in the Middle of Ages. Course. Of course. There was, um, there, there was, um, you know, scriptural commentary all over the place. Sure. Yeah. The they they were um, you know, the development of the, the sermon conferences. It was not like the Sume was that was in the Ivory Tower. Sure. Yeah. But um there yeah, was, was so a, much more going on. Yeah, it was an important part of the of a broader whole, right? Um, but it was not in any way exclusive <laughs> or mm-hmm. even probably predominant, right? Yeah, in the lives of uh, of most Catholics. I mean, think about the cult of the saints. You know, uh, you know, and uh, those sort of things is probably being much more <laughs> to the uh, fore mm-hmm. uh, for the average person. But, you know, even say something with the cult of the saints or say, uh, you know, say the emergence of the cult of the Blessed Sacrament, right, in the medieval period, right? You know, you see that emergence and you see theology kind of growing along with the piety, right, of yeah. the people in terms of, well, we really need to sit down, you know, okay, we've always maybe affirmed that this is really the flesh and blood of Christ, but what does that really mean? Because it doesn't look like flesh and blood. And yeah. so we need to kind of start thinking about like this, you know, uh, as well, right? And also there's some you know people who are coming up with bad answers, right? Mm-hmm. Interestingly, though, even bad answers are kind of part of the Catholic intellectual tradition, too. You know, it's kind yeah. of like you kind of got to get like the ball's got to start somewhere, right? You know? And well, so yeah, maybe, sure. You know, so. So let's let's look at um, going all the way back to the patristic period, even very very early on, right? Mm-hmm. You look at people like um, Tertullian and Novatian, mm-hmm. and um, now those are two guys who are kind of more on the fringes of the Catholic tradition, right? One because sure. Tertullian was um, this is a very interesting point, right? Tertullian was in a sort of irregular relationship with the church toward the end of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, he had become involved in um, Montanist sympathizing North African moral rigorists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and Novation was one of the first anti-popes of the church. <laughs> right, yeah. um, and he was also a North African moral rigorist. Mm-hmm. But both of those guys made tremendous contributions to the Catholic intellectual tradition and are very much, you know, important fathers of the church. Right, right. So if you look at, um, you know, who's one of the most, one of the most, not the most, but one of the most quoted authorities in the Catholic um, doctrinal tradition, Mm. uh, that would be Tertullian. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. He's one of the most common sources in the catechism. Yeah, Mm mm-hmm. So um, 
you know, it's just very, it's very interesting, right, about that. Uh, but now, when you look at their work um, on the Trinity, both of them wrote on the Trinity mm -hmm. at a time before the pivotal councils in which, you know, the church came away with, you know, like this, okay, we, we got the formula. Right. Um, they're groping, they're groping at a way of articulating the thing. Mm -hmm. But if we look at what they actually said by the standards of orthodoxy established at um, at Ephesus and Chalcedon, mm -hmm. um, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have passed muster. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, sure, sure. But that shows you like where that development has to take place, right? I mean, um, like as part of both kind of the dogmatic tradition of the church, more importantly, but even sort of the broader Catholic intellectual tradition that we're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is sort of a. a it is interesting, right? Like. There is a way in which you might aspire towards, I want to be careful how to say this, uh, immutability. Mm -hmm. And certainly we do think that there are immutable truths that are part of the Catholic dogmatic tradition, right? Yeah. Um, but those emerge, it seems to me, kind of from those immutable points, like I, in my imagination, kind of, I, I kind of, like they're like sort of like a, it's a matrix of there's a matrix of change and sources and factors kind of flowing together. And out of that matrix, there are points <laughs> right mm -hmm. that emerge as sort of immutable points, right? But they're sort of surrounded by a larger sort of network, right, of uh sources and trains of thought, you know, um, you know, and um historical moments or historical movements yeah uh that that come and go you know um and that's not that's not bad you know it's, it's part of being human right it's part of history mm -hmm. right it shows we're actually engaged in uh in in what's happening the um so yeah i think that's a uh um important to recognize right that the change is going to be actually part of the catholic intellectual tradition right and actually that that's that's not just okay. That's that shows that you were actually embedded in reality, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the like again the the question of industrial capitalism didn't exist in the eighth century. You couldn't have written Rerum Navarro, you know? right? Like, right. Mm -hmm. Like like Rerum Navarro comes in. Yeah, that's why it's time. called new things, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's new things, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some of the principles are very old, right? That Leo the Thirteenth draws on, mm -hmm. right? And they come from the past, right? But it is sort of um, a new question, um, which that very sort of dynamic there, uh, you know, makes me think of another element that I think is important to bring in here is, and that is what we mean with the word tradition, right? Yeah. Here, um, I've already said, of course, we're not talking about the dogmatic tradition, although it's related to the dogmatic tradition. Mm -hmm. um, but tradition, right? Literally, and is you know the Latin term under here is tradere, right? Which means something like to hand on, yeah, right? Uh -huh. um, and that that presupposes something to be handed on, right? <clears throat> you know, and in this case, from the past. So, even though the Catholic intellectual tradition at its best is engaged in the present, right, and with many interlocutors, it also looks to the past, right? And uh, this is probably what makes the most, you know, very uh, a pronounced aspect, right, of the Catholic intellectual tradition mm -hmm. 
and I think rightly so, and very importantly so, right? I think, you know, if if I was giving advice, when I have given advice, I should say, to Scott, to younger scholars, right? I always say there's you're never going to waste time reading Plato. Yeah, just keep, uh, I mean, you just read Plato on and on and on. Am I a Platonist? No. But are you going to waste time reading Plato? No. Why? Because he is a, uh, his impact is so gigantic within the history of philosophy and within the Catholic intellectual tradition that it's always going to be useful and fruitful for you to have studied, right? Yeah. And I'd say the same thing about certain other canonical kind, what I would call canonical lower C authors or questions, right? Like one of my favorite things is to walk people through kind of the the efforts of early Greek philosophy to get to certainty, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And the way Plato does that and the way you know Aristotle does that and and that it's a great, you know, little sort of um uh I don't know, episode, right, in the history of philosophy mm-hmm. to work your mind through, right? Yeah. Um or to account so, or to account for the relationship between permanence and change, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Very good. Right. And so I think you know the Catholic intellectual tradition is always looking back, right? Like you should always, if you're a Catholic theologian, know the history of the Christological controversies. Yeah. Right. You should your mind should be embedded in that episode in those episodes, right? Such that you can kind of recount them, relive them, rethink them, you know, in a very sort of lively and, and, and you way. have to. You have to, because, you know, there's the adage uh, that those who don't remember history are condemned to repeat it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's true theologically as well as politically, mm-hmm. um, right? It's, it's um, if we don't understand the Christological and Trinitarian controversies of the early church, right? we're really probably going to start reaffirming some of those heresies. <laughs> right. because, and in fact, you see it happening, right? Yeah, you see it happening all over the place. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason is that those heresies actually make sense. <laughs> they may be incorrect, ultimately. They right. might not yeah. be able to do what we need a teaching to do mm-hmm. uh, within within the framework of orthodoxy, but right. um, but, they're, but they're easier for the human mind to, to wrap itself sure. around. Sure, sure. Yeah. Right. And that's yeah. why they were so appealing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, this is one of my favorite things actually uh, to think through as a Catholic, uh, especially in the light of, and it should be really for any Christian, but in the light of say the new Testament witness, right. I mean, you come up with these answers that are, are, are answers, right. To the question of who and what is Jesus Christ. Right. Um, but that they're just not adequate to the data. Right. right. You know, at the end of the day, Maybe I have a really hard time offering a better explanation, right? mm-hmm. but I know that the, the data doesn't seem to fit with. Yeah, there's something being left out saying. of account. That's right. This, yeah. yeah, right, mm-hmm. right, right. Which I think, again, shows you the importance of being a Catholic intellectual. You're seeking understanding, right? You're living within a certain community. You're engaged with contemporary, you know, questions, but you're always engaged with the past, right, too. Yeah. Because for a variety of reasons, but one of which is to be a Catholic is to to be engaged with those sources, right? Uh, you know, to draw from Thomas Aquinas, to draw from uh, Augustine, you know, to know your Plato, to understand the Christological, you know, um, uh, controversies, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. And to understand those controversies, too, you need to understand the philosophical presuppositions with which right. various interlocutors mm-hmm. were working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they That's weren't right. always the same sure. as one another, right? Sure. Which yeah, I mean, it, is the issue. 
Yeah, a very important thing. I always try to remind students when they when that it do, does come up, right, is that, you know, early Christianity, you know, um, from a metaphysical perspective, right, uh, it just the broader philosophical world, Platonists and Stoics were the primary were the primary yeah, interlocutors, right. not Aristotelians. Right. Um, you know, for you know, for a variety of reasons, both Platonism and Stoicism were just more much more popular you know yeah. and much much more prevalent and that's and true that's, for like the first thousand years or more of, uh... <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, yeah it's a big part of the tradition right uh and uh yeah you need to need to be aware of that uh for so, sure so let me let me um that reminds me of something i wanted to i want to uh respond to from what you said earlier mm-hmm. um because you were talking about being willing to engage a philosophical view um even if it's wrong, mm-hmm. right? And and it occurred to me, well, what would ha- what would have happened in the history of the church if we had never been willing to do that, <laughs> right? But we'd have no philosophical framework, <laughs> right? I mean, Platon. Yeah. I'm sorry, but Platonism, Neoplatonism, wasn't good enough. Ultimately, mm-hmm. right? It sure. it has a lot of utility. It has a lot mm-hmm. to offer, but there are built in problems to Neoplatonism, sure. which led yeah. to innumerable heresies, <laughs> heresies in the church now yeah, yeah. by the time the middle ages came around we had, we'd kind of worked through a lot of that sure right and became yeah. a system with we were comfortable navigating the landmines yeah i think it's uh, legitimate to say we had developed a christian platonism by yeah that point. right 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 um then aristotle comes along you mm-hmm. know and and we have the same problem and mm-hmm. there were people who were like no <laughs> That's right. right i mean we're not gonna crazy um, right. and and they refused they refused to engage that's right yeah. but eventually yeah, we developed right. a sort of you know aristotelian um a uh we, we developed a, a sort of christian uh, aristotelianism yeah yeah i think that's fair i can't, can't remember i saw that phrase in a book or a uh um conference title or something and i, and I was like that's right that that's that's actually what you need to say. I mean, it's, it's there's a uh, within the broader Catholic intellectual tradition, there's a a movement, an intellectual movement, a historical movement of Christian Platonism. There's mm-hmm. a historical movement of you know, or, or you might say Platonizing Christians, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and there's a movement of Aristotelian, you know, using Aristotle. I can't turn Aristotle into a verb; it's too hard. But uh, the uh, uh, Christian Aristotelians, right? Um, who are Christians using Aristotle, right? And and bending those ideas, uh, you know, to their Christian purposes, right? Mm-hmm. And in a way that's in view with the Christian, you know, data uh, and broader sort of Catholic, tra- you know, tradition. Um, I think it's helpful to think about them in those ways, um, uh, for sure. The, um, uh, but you know, so. There's an interesting when I think about it. So that I really insist on the importance of looking back, drawing on the re, on on the resources. This also allows for a certain, and this is probably a little tense for some people. I would say um, a limited pluralism mm-hmm. <laughs> within the Catholic intellectual tradition. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, you can't really be a Platonist and an Aristotelian, I would say, fully, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Plato believes in a world of separate ideas and universals, and Aristotle explicitly disagrees, right? Insofar as they're being separate, 
Now, maybe they're maybe Plato and Aristotle are closer to each other than people think. I kind of have that view, but yeah. um, nevertheless, you know, there there's just important, very important distinctions, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, saying their political doctrines, right, are, are quite uh, distinct. Um, the uh, um, so that if both of those have been used legitimately by approved members of the Catholic Church right yeah then it does mean that there's going to be strains and the, uh, there's going to be part of the catholic intellectual tradition that doesn't agree with this part of the catholic intellectual tradition mm-hmm. on some things and not others now god willing of course we all agree on christological dogmas and trinitarian dogmas and things of that nature right but that there are going to be points of epistemology metaphysics maybe even some ethical issues um where we differ um what do you think about that yeah i think that's right um and i think that's right i mean there are unresolved questions in in the catholic intellectual tradition right right um that deal with some pretty big things right Mm -hmm. um you know so one of the things that comes up uh over and over and over again one can never avoid it no matter how hard he tries is is the you know the issue of um of future contingency and <laughs> causality and all that right, <laughs> right um, yeah. providence predestination yeah like how you work all that stuff out is yeah. is going to have a lot to do with certain metaphysical presuppositions right mm-hmm. um and that's one of those places in which in which you see where those um those unresolved questions are mm-hmm right yeah, yeah. but the I church affirms the liberty of the schools on these points right and that's a, a thing i think about the catholic intellectual tradition catholic faith in general that people maybe sometimes underappreciate right yeah um uh you know i was just talking to somebody recently who's interested in coming to the catholic church and we had a great conversation was a great dude really enjoyed talking to him but you know he's kind of definitely like you know intellectual guy that he's wanting to convert right you know, and it sort of has that, uh, uh, you know, sometimes um, there's what uh, sometimes people will call like being a cage stage Calvinist, right? Where you're like a hardcore Calvinist. You want to just bash everybody who's not a Calvinist. Uh-huh. The truth is there's also like a cage stage Catholic, yeah, right? Yeah. And it's sort of like, you know, if you're not Catholic, you're just stupid, right? Uh-huh. And, you know, like that's not true. I mean, obviously there are people who are not Catholic who are not stupid, right? <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, 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 or or the alternatives are just all idiotic and blah 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 and you know just you know whatever uh, and you was you want to avoid that too right um but um i think there's a a hope a wish an understandable wish to some degree by some people for a kind of uniformity right mm-hmm. within the catholic intellectual tradition that doesn't actually exist well, and that I that's think that's actually a good thing. Uh, uh, now, I want to caution immediately. Don't anybody freak out? Okay, I said I don't think there's a uniformity about. I should say about everything, right? Mm-hmm. There's certainly a unity and there's a consistency on matters that are core, right? And those yeah. core things, have, you know, are settled by the church over time. Um, but that there's still with that unity in mind and within certain parameters, maybe there's no way of putting it. There is a legitimate diversity of views. 
Right. So, um, you know, I tend to make a distinction as follows. Now, I'm I'm using these words in I'm using these words in in the way I'm defining them here, but this is the way I kind of conceptualize it. There's a dogma. There's doctrine, and there's uh, theological opinion or judgment, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if you say, "What's the do- what, are, what are the dogmatic questions?" Well, those are the questions that cut to the very heart of Revelation itself, right? Mm-hmm. What is being revealed by God about Himself, about His relationship or our relationship to Him, um, His intentions for creation, etc.? What's actually in the data God reveals, mm-hmm. right? That's um, that's the dogmatic question. Um, the doctrinal question is, um, you know, the way the church teaches on the basis of that, mm-hmm. right? And so you could have uh, doctrine, maybe we would admit of even um, different categories of doctrine. We might say sure. uh, common doctrine, we might say... Um, we might say, um, you know, established church teaching, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Or we might say, um, you know, doctrines in the sense of uh, um, schools of thought, right, that sure. that certainly have their place, right, but, but alongside other schools of thought, which right. also consistently develop teachings on the basis of what's revealed. And then finally, theological opinion or judgment would be where the distinct theologian um, confronts a question which is in fact open mm-hmm. and uh, formulates uh, formulates an opinion on the basis of what's taught and what's revealed right. sure sure right and and in that in that realm in particular there's a there's actually a great deal of uh, of liberty mm-hmm. provided, you know, what it is, the judgment that you're forming, the theological opinion you're articulating, is responsible to those to those other things. Yes, yes, I think that's the way of putting it. It's a good way of putting it. Um, uh, kind of like what we were talking about before, about, you know, sort of being responsible to the New Testament data, right? Right. You know, that kind of thing, right? You can't just make up anything, <laughs> right? right, right. You know, like, it's got to actually fit the narratives, right, yeah. uh-huh. of Scripture, right? Like, for example, that Jesus was a dude. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You can't uh, just sort of ignore that. I think that's a great point, uh, Rich. And then, so in all this, there's sort of a balance, right? Uh, it seems to me uh, that you're trying to strike. And there's one other element I want to bring in here, a balance, kind of, I know we're kind of drawing here a little bit towards our end, but is, so we've talked about being engaged, right? Mm-hmm. In the present and being engaged with certain questions, being part of a specific community and drawing on historical sources, right, uh, as all part of the Catholic intellectual tradition. Another part of it, though, I think, is as we're engaging in the present, discerning how much of the past is brought into the present and the future, right? Yes. Right, and how much new can we take on? Right would be mm-hmm. another way of putting that. Right, uh, that maybe maybe is anticipated by certain things maybe in the tradition, but certainly isn't maybe a strong element or hasn't mm-hmm. been visible or very manifest or something like that. Right. So you know, to borrow a little bit from John Henry Newman, you know, like the 
the acorn doesn't necessarily look very much like <laughs> the, the developed oak tree in its full mature glory, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, they look remarkably different. Yeah. Actually, right? That's something to think about, right? As a, if you think about, if you accept kind of a organic development kind of point mm -hmm. of view, right? Now, that's in a dogmatic context where that's employed most of the time. But I think we're broadly in the Catholic intellectual tradition, right? So, uh, you know, I'm on sort of the, so let me make this kind of concrete and we can maybe tease this out a little bit, but uh, say, you know, the, um, this is a can of worms, but I will bring it up anyways, the 20th century sort of theological debate within the church, right? Between resourcement and uh, we'll say rigor, uh, very rigorous Thomist, right? Yeah. You know, so there's a definite 20th century clash there, right? And and it's sometimes, you know, you can think of that clash. I mean, there are probably aspects leaving aside maybe ethical or moral negative things about it. It's necessary, it seems to me, that there are going to be clashes in the intellect, Catholic intellectual tradition. As we, I mean, we've talked about, right? There's going to be disputation. There's going to be a legitimate pluralism, yeah. right? And if there are, then there's going to be disagreements. And those disagreements are going to lead to disputes. And that's that's... And it's to a certain degree fine, right? Mm -hmm. uh, again, always up to a point and within certain parameters. Um, and, you know, obviously my sympathies are, are more on the Thomas side, but I would, but you do have to say this, even from that perspective, um, very importantly, there's nothing wrong with, in principle, right? And there's a very clear, good reason for this to say this, but in principle for uh, new or, or sort of um, emergent Catholic theological movements apprising themselves of maybe different philosophical resources than are used by Thomist, right? Um, obviously, a, a historically self-conscious Thomist couldn't hold that position without historical contradiction, right? Right, right. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, vis-a-vis... Thomas appropriating Albert the Great and Thomas appropriating Aristotle, who we talked about earlier, was new, right? Yeah, and uh, intensely controversial. And intensely controversial, right? So, you know, uh, you know, I'm quite happy to to accept uh, whatever insights phenomenology has to offer. I'm also happy to offer my uh, friendly criticisms, uh, but there's nothing in principle wrong, right? Mm -hmm. With new theological movements taking up uh, new philosophical presuppositions or methodologies or, or things of that yeah. nature, right? Uh, which does then, you know, there's going to be some, that does mean there's going to be some tension and some some disputation. I think that's okay up to a point. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so you need to be tethered to those, um, you need to be tethered to those uh, immutable things, right? To those mm -hmm. those points that we can't, we can't uh, diverge from without without undermining our proclamation of faith. Right, right. The yeah. dogma, you've got mm -hmm. to be firm on that. Yeah. Um, the, um, but I, I think you know it's sort of like iron sharpening iron, right? In the sense that sure. um, that dialogue is a way of ferreting out the weaknesses in um, the new position. So if, so as you know, you and I, um, you and I are sort of uh, this is a point of a point of um, I don't want to quite say tension. That's not the right word. But this is, 
there's a point at which you and I are sort of on different sides mm-hmm. of that fence, I guess, right? I tend to sure. be more of a resource mon- adjournmento type, um, more sympathetic to the personalist um, mm-hmm. phenomenological approach, although I'm firmly grounded in the um, Thomistic tradition as well, right? I mean, I was sure. formed in that before I took up this other stuff. Um, so the discussion that takes place, the debate, the disagreements, right? Mm-hmm. It forces people not to embrace with too much enthusiasm a view that's not as strong or defensible as it really needs to be in the long run. Right. And so sure. it 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 forces it to be developed further. Mm-hmm. That, that's an important stage, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, and on the other side, right, let's say that the other side prevails in the long run, um, the more conservative view, it mm-hmm. too is being tested. Sure. It's being, there are questions yeah. being put to it that perhaps from within its own history haven't yet been confronted. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And it needs to confront those things, right? So it's mm-hmm. it's it's a process, as you say, it, it's, I, let's not use the word in, um, necessary, maybe it's, um, well, I guess it is necessary. We might use the word um, uh, unavoidable or mm-hmm. um, inevitable, right? I mean, it's sure as new questions arise, there is a philosophical tradition going on out there, even if we're not part of it, and right, right, and right, it's right. it's forcing certain questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so eventually, they're going to show up at our door. <laughs> right. How will we deal with them? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, so I think, you know, um, when you're thinking then about the Catholic intellectual tradition, you're going to expect, I think, to see new, mm-hmm. right? And I think as a Catholic intellectual, so you're a Catholic intellectual, you want to be part of this ongoing tradition, right? Um, you both want to look at the new in a way that is uh, like we talked about earlier, engaged um, uh, that tries to understand it as a whole, mm-hmm. right. Um, is critical, you know, in a just way, right. Not an unjust way. Um, but isn't. Um, and I think a lot of Catholics struggle with this. I struggle with it. Um, I think the church is struggling with it but isn't closed off to what's new necessarily. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, of course that doesn't mean open to everything new either. Right. Right. (laughs) Right? Right. And so that's where the, there's a tension, right. I think in the, the, the Catholic intellectual tradition, a a kind of healthy tradition, a healthy challenge, right. Of discerning the new and discerning, as I say, how much of the past we preserve in the present. Mm-hmm. Right. So, for example, you know, I have friends who are uh, and fellow travelers, I would say, up to a point, Catholic monarchists. Mm-hmm. Um, and with all due respect to that tradition, like I'm no anti monarchist, right? Like I, I don't sit around thinking, man, I really hate kings. <laughs> you know, like it's mm-hmm. pretty far from my mind, right? Uh, but at the same time, I kind of think, it just doesn't seem like a really lively option right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, I don't know that that's, that's not the forefront of my political thought and engagement, you know, 
um, because it just doesn't seem like a live option. It's, you do yeah. you know what I mean? You know, it's and not so, fit for the time, perhaps, right? Sure. Yeah. From I mean, I'm a philosopher, so I'm happy to just deal with abstractions too. And we can have abstract arguments about monarchy, and that's lovely and a good thing to do. And we even had a podcast about Christian right. monarchy, right? But at the same time, you know, sort of like advocating for it strongly, you know, like that just doesn't seem to me like something that I need to spend a lot of my intellectual energy on. Um, there might be other things that are more, you know, sort of theological, right, that we have to think through. Obviously, a big touchy issue for us in all of this is the reform of the liturgy, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a huge issue, right? Still a matter of great dispute and angst amongst people and for some understandable reasons, right? You know, how much of the old liturgy should be preserved? How much should new things be brought in or reintroduced, right? Um those are those are you know I was at fraught questions and I'm not I don't expect you rich to answer that right now but that's that's a, I think a very good example of this discernment of the new that yeah, I'm trying uh -huh. to, to to bring out that that's part of the Catholic intellectual tradition. Yeah, so um, you know it's uh, there are a couple more points in our discussion that I um, that come to my mind right uh, and. Uh, and I think, you know, we Francis talks a lot about, he uses this word accompaniment, mm -hmm. and we've been hearing the word dialogue for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. Now, um, you know, many people, of course, they're critical of Francis' use of the word accompaniment because it doesn't appear to be really clearly defined anywhere. Mm. But I think that, um, let me give it a shot, right? Okay, okay so... Accompaniment maybe means, I mean, I'll, I'll give it a, I'll give it a definition that, you know, theologically makes sense to me, right? Um, accompaniment would mean um, engaging people where they are, knowing where the horizon of um, truth lies. We know where the horizon of truth lies, um, but it's sort of like a cave rescue. Well, yeah, to use the uh, allegory of the cave as an image, sure, right? Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. You, go, you go down into that cave, and the right. guy doesn't know anything about what's <laughs> up on the surface, right? He can't even begin to imagine it. <laughs> right, right. Uh -huh. And so you've got to sort of coax him out of his situation. Sure. Um, and, and lead him, you know, f through these in toddling steps and um, right. on the basis of what he's able to think and imagine, uh, you lead him closer and closer. Maybe that's what accompaniment means. And and um, that would be true, not only at the level of um, intellect, but at the level of morals sure. as well, right? That there are certain moral positions this person can't yet imagine mm -hmm. as being possible. Sure, sure. Uh, and you know that not only are they possible, but necessary. Right. Um, and so you, you have to kind of recognize the fact that he's incapable of it at the moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I, I think that's what... I think that's what Francis is yeah, trying yeah. to say. Sure. Yeah. Right. Now there are precise and imprecise ways of articulating that. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the criticisms are well-founded that some rather imprecise ways have been used to sure. try to, to try to identify that problem. But I think that's what he means. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So mm -hmm. the, um, and that makes sense to me. So going back to this, to this um, issue of 
engaging people who are wrong, and I mm-hmm. know they're wrong, right? Uh, it, it's a it's a fact of human psychology, right? That we are in fact more receptive to the other guy's view if we start from the position that we believe we've been given a fair hearing. Yes, sure. Right? Like uh that's so if I am going to debate with and try to refute this other guy's position, if mm-hmm. in the end I'm gonna have to tell him that he is wrong. Right, right. Um it's really important for me mm-hmm. to to understand his point of view, yes. to be able to see from within that framework. Yes. Like that's uh, how I will accompany him mm-hmm. to the truth. Yep. Yep. I think that's that's completely correct. Yeah. I think that's a good uh and that's a good example too, uh, Rich, of um a term, an idea, a concept, right? <clears throat> that uh is new-ish anyways, right? Mm-hmm. Uh being sort of uh, incorporated into the Catholic intellectual tradition, right? Um I think that's uh that's good. So um um and 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 is is maybe a feature right of actually doing it the right way right mm-hmm. in the sense that you're you're engaging with and maybe even critical but in a way that maybe takes place within the context of friendship right yeah uh and a just hearing out you know um that sort of thing i think that's um uh maybe a good good uh a good way of putting it yeah and a good part of the tradition um did you have anything else you wanted to add there rich yeah, I wanted to just um, return to this, I, the disputed question idea, and and the fact that you and I have both um, challenged students to engage in that exercise, mm-hmm. right, as professors, and um, and I, I've noticed that you know with me, I've I've had varying degrees of success with it, but I've noticed that today, specifically with really with young Gen Zers, it's becoming increasingly difficult to do, in my experience. And um, and there are basically two reasons that I've that are at work here. Okay. Um, we could probably do a whole podcast just on this yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. But but I, I wanted to hear your 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 response to what it is I'm about to say. Um, the first problem is that people don't really have the concept of logical argumentation anymore. Like Mm -hmm. the idea of um, articulating premises that relate to each other in such a way Mm -hmm. that they necessarily yield a conclusion Mm -hmm. um, is like people just don't get that idea. You know, they, they, they'll use a proposition as an argument. Yeah. My uh, argument is blah. Unproposition right. doesn't cut it. <laughs> yeah. <you know>? yeah. <laughs> um, and then the other the other reason it's very difficult to engage in this, and this may be more fundamental, is that um they really do have a very, very difficult time crediting their intellectual opponent mm-hmm. with um with the integrity of his own position. Right. They can't yeah understand the idea of arguing for a position that you do not hold yeah so this latter point is this do you think more i thought about this a bit a moral failing or a lack of intellectual imagination 
Yeah, I'm not. The, see, I've the, been thinking the inability I'm to. Not sure you can separate those two. Yeah, yeah. The because um, the inability to see the possible rationality of the other's position. Now, I'll say this: when I, I just finished teaching critical thinking uh, this last semester. Yeah. Um, I think one definite thing is if you're in charge of curriculum anywhere in the in something please add logic and critical thinking or something like it please right <laughs> that's i mean there's probably a few courses that we could be more important to be honest right um but um when i teach it explicitly one of the things i add in is i start with the idea of fallibility and mm -hmm. personal fallibility and I ask everybody in the room, have you ever been wrong? Yeah. Everybody raises their hand. I mean, unless you're a complete like wacko, right? Or like, a, you know, unless you're psychotic, right? You're going to raise your hand. Yeah, I've been wrong. Yeah. Uh -huh. Like just once or more than once, you know? So I kind of go through this little yeah, routine. Probably a right? lot. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I say, so you're fallible. And that, yeah, you can make mistakes. We can make errors. We're human, right? If you can kind of tease that out a little bit, I think people will embrace the idea that their opponent from that you infer you see so your opponent could be right <laughs> yeah <laughs> right. i could be wrong in this instance <laughs> that's right. right and your opponent right i think when you just but you have to i think kind of like to really kind of bring it out right in a way mm -hmm. that that focuses on that issue if you jump into it like say let's argue about abortion gay marriage transgenderism something like that the the a priori principles and sentiments will kick in too hard, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. you, you got you can't use one of those examples and try to bring this point out. Mm -hmm. You have to 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 focus on just the idea of fallibilism is what I would I would say. Yeah, yeah, work out from there. So I do have some hope, you know, that that can happen. I've seen it happen now. Getting you to move from I intellectually accept in general that I'm fallible. I could be wrong, and my opponent is right you know, it could be right. Transferring that to a particular issue, right? That, yeah. that, that'll be the, that, I mean, I can only hope, you know, um, give the students what I can in class to, to help them do that. Yeah. So I but guess it does seem, from... it does seem to me that there's an inner, inner, inner connection between both there being a moral failure and a lack of intellectual imagination. There. Yeah. So I guess my, my sort of, you know, closing thoughts today um, would be that I, I, I think the Catholic, I think all the things we've said today are pretty much right about how we should think about the Catholic intellectual tradition, about how broad, how broadly we can we should conceptualize it, the way we need to engage, mm -hmm. um, you know, all the issues that come to bear upon the world in which we're trying to live out our covenant with God and profession of faith. That's right. Um, at the same time. I think that in this moment where we're doing that very thing, we need to come to grips with the fact that we are facing certain intellectual crises within our own believing community, mm -hmm. and or at least that permeate our community, mm -hmm. and that we um, we need to recover certain we need to recover certain qualities that we once possessed. Um, as a Catholic intellectual community, hmm. the capacity to um, the capacity actually to listen to the other side, 
to engage it on its own terms right, um, right, right. rather than just to close off against it and be insular mm-hmm. while at the same time right the equally important capacity to identify what's central to mm-hmm. our own position and um and not to be so uncritically open that mm-hmm. we adopt views for ourselves that are antithetical to our core beliefs yeah 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 i think that's yeah that's key yeah you're right i mean that's that's that and that's it's it's easier to be one without keeping the other in mind right yeah but that's, that's how heresy why, works. that's how i think how we 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 tend to, to decline right as yeah. thinkers right it, when we sort of i'm gonna latch on to uh the fixity and and just sort of reject anything new or i'm going to just latch on to the new and not let anything that's fixed help me discern that some of the new might be bad <laughs> right? right or right. contrary to the, right. the 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 deep sources right of right the faith. i think another, maybe a somewhat similar way of putting uh what you put there rich and uh you know say this carefully is um maybe just as kind of food for further thought is that I think in the Catholic intellectual tradition, um, content and process are probably equally important because change is part of the Catholic intellectual tradition um, as a historical reality, Mm -hmm. right? Um, We've talked a good bit about the process stuff, being engaged, the present, thinking about, you know, the new and the past, being engaged in the past, those sorts of things, being a member of the community, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that always has to be balanced with the fixed dogmatic content, right, of the faith, yeah, as well as the fixed, I would say, sources of the faith and sources of the Catholic intellectual tradition, right? That uh, I think are canonical and the permanent questions, right? We're always mm-hmm. going to come back to the question of Christ, the question of the Trinity, the question of grace. You know, those are going to be things that always have, we have to uh, revisit. Um, does that sound good, Rich? Yeah, it does. Good. Right. So, um, great discussion. Yeah, it's fun. I, uh, I think we could, there are a lot of new, there are a lot of other podcasts we could probably have spinning off of this discussion. Sure. But um, for the listeners, I hope you got something out of this and um, hopefully it made you a more careful and appreciative thinker. Uh, So thanks, Dr. Smith. Um, And until next time, God bless. Mm